Welcome back, everybody. I'm very excited to once again be joined by Anas. And Anas, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time again. It's a big pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you very much. So just a quick note, this is the second episode, and the first we did is a couple of years ago. It's episode 141, and then we we learned about your history, some big principles, but today I thought we would just dive straight into, you know, red hot topics, and if it's okay with you, can we start with the development in the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, because it's been quite a quite a story so far at the end of 2023 what's your over, overall perspective and how did we even get here everything that happened and took place kind of very strange uh just before the gaza uh, war started we have movement in the u.s fleet to the area that's north of the suez canal and all of a sudden the houthis basically started attacking certain ships and the u.s fleet and other uh, ships, basically other warships, move to the south part of the canal. And they tried to create a coalition. The coalition collapsed. However, even when they started that coalition, the two countries that border the Red Sea, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, refused to participate. So there are all kinds of weird things going on. And the reason why you have two groups, you don't have even states. You do have two groups. Both of them are are classified as terrorist groups. And all of a sudden, you have fleets of the greatest nations on Earth, the United States, uh, the UK, and others in Europe coming. This is not a state. This is not World War III, why they are moving. So it is very hard to see how this is just the result of Hamas in Gaza and the Houthis in Yemen. This is way larger than that. If you look at it, we have serious problem with shipping worldwide. We have the Russians shifting all their oil uh, from Europe to Asia through the Swiss Canal. We have a drought in the, in the Panama Canal that is rerouting ships through the Swiss Canal. Uh, we have all the Chinese trade, or most of it basically, is going through the Swiss Canal. So it's very hard to believe that all of this just because a couple of terrorist groups causing problems in the area. This is part of a global trade war where the United States and Europe felt they need to have more control. And I think that's what's, got, what's happening right now. And the irony here is with all the threats that we heard about and shipping companies or diverting the ships around Africa or planning to divert ships where the media basically falling into this trap and started reporting what is planned as if it happened. A few days later, the United States declared that the area is safe and there is no reason to panic and ships can pass. And then we have, of course, uh, the Norwegian shipping company uh, retracting what is said about diverting ships and said all the ships are going to go through the Swiss Canal. So what is the difference between a week earlier and a week later? It's the repositioning of the warships in the region. But theoretically, the threats is still there. The Houthis are still there. Hamas is still there. So it's just repositioning. And that uh, gives the impression this is really part of the uh, control of the world trade especially with uh, Russia and China uh, having more trade through the 
Red Sea and the Swiss Canal. Fascinating. So we're entering 2024. Do you expect a lot of volatility in all those scenarios going forward? Or do you see like a, a pretty obvious pathway ahead? Or do you still still bumpy right ahead where a lot of things can happen? Whenever we talk about the oil market, it's it just volatility is built in no matter what. Uh, if, if the issues are not the political events, the political events basically have been there forever. So th this is not the big issue. The big issue right now, and some people raise this issue, is that if there are problems in the Red Sea and around the Swiss Canal, it is because of the military buildup. It's not because of the attacks. Those attacks been there before. And as you remember, there, there were even uh, warships that been attacked by the Houthis historically. Strangely enough, the United States did not reimpose the classification of a terrorist group on the Houthis, despite everything that happened. Let us remember that President Trump classified the Houthis as a terrorist group, but the Biden administration removed that. Yet, even after the attack, they did not go back and relabel it as a terrorist group. Of course, some experts believe that there is a reason for it because if they label it as a terrorist group, they cannot negotiate with it because that's forbidden by law. But still, we are talking about major attacks here. Uh, the shipping industry is in total panic because of it. And yet they did not classify it as a terrorist group. Talking about 2024 and the oil market. Right now, every time we talk about the oil market, we have to talk about the LNG too, because in all those waterways, we have the oil tankers and we have the LNG tankers. And the it is until now, we did not see any attacks on oil tankers or LNG tankers. And it's not expected to happen simply because probably the Houthis realize that attacking an oil tanker or an LNG tanker will change the whole uh, equation and will turn the world against them because any spill, any major problem in the waters is going to, literally is going to be covered in all the media and many global organizations and many countries will turn against them if we reach that point. However, when we look at 2024, earlier in 2023, we were bullish on the fourth quarter of 2023 and 2024. But things changed dr drastically uh, in the second half of 2023. We've seen a slowdown in economic growth in several places, including Europe, China, and the United States. And we, with that slow growth, basically, we ended up with lower oil demand than expected. That led to build up in inventories, especially in China while we were expecting a decline. So between what we were expecting and the current level, we have about 70 million barrels that's been built up that was not counted for. Uh, we have similar problem in the United States. And here I have a comment on oil demand in the United States. If you look at the EIA numbers, we have seen an increase in oil demand in the first 10 months of the year, over 2022. So there is an, an increase, but that increase is within the margin of error 
given the adjustment numbers of the AIA, and for those who are familiar with the term, we have a serious problem with the AIA numbers because when they estimate supply and they estimate demand, they should equal each other. And when they don't, they just throw the difference in between to make them equal. And that difference was huge. That difference is still larger than the increase in demand today. And one of the problems we have is that we might end up with double counting. And if we go uh, down this path, we might end up showing that US oil demand declined. And here is why. Because we have something in the oil business called natural gas liquids. Those natural ga ga uh, gas liquids can be used as intermediate goods or final goods. So those are classified as part of the demand. But because of the massive increase in US crude exports, what we've seen basically is we've seen a group called blenders. These are not even refiners. They take the heavier crude, they take these natural gas liquids, they mix them, and they end up with a crude that is classified as a crude and, and part of the exports. So that is counted, but the problem now is being counted twice. It's being counted as liquids and then counted again as crude. And that gives you the impression that probably the uh, oil demand numbers in the United States are overestimated. And there are other evidence to support this idea that probably we did not have any growth uh, in the United States demand. All of this is casting a shadow on 2024. So as I mentioned, we're bullish on 2024. Now we are not. What we, what we see today probably will continue throughout the year absent any political events. And probably we might end up with lower volatility. Looking back at 2023, one of the main characteristics of 2023 relative to other years is that it is a year where all forecasts have failed. We usually always have all kinds of forecasts and some of them will fail, some of them will not. But 2023 was the year when every forecast failed, including ours. So we were doing our forecast basically was literally spot on on so many things and on the first three quarters of the year. And then we reached the fourth quarter, everything collapsed. And we were awfully wrong on, on the fourth quarter, although we've been doing very well on the first three quarters. What went wrong for most forecasts, not for us, for most forecasts, that first, they assumed that sanctions are going to work, sanctions on Russia are going to work, and that's going to lead to a substantial decrease in Russian production. We came in uh, last year, at the end of last year, and we said, no way, uh, you need to study sanctions. Sanctions always fail. Russians basically will learn, will take a page from the Iranian book and make a thousand books out of it. And one of the ironies is that uh, we said a thousand books, uh, we just said it as a sort of exaggeration and we ended up with 1,000 1, oil tankers being bought by the Russians. That was just kind of a strange, strange coincidence. 
But the idea here is uh, we estimated that uh, Russian uh, oil production will decline by 600,000. That prediction we made at the end of 2022, guess what? The decline was 550. So we were spot on on this decline, while the others were talking about a decline of three to five million barrels. So that was one of the reasons for the failure. The other failure was they assumed that the opening of China will lead to immediate explosion in oil demand. And we said, no way. This is going to show up later in the year. Of course, even that did not show up. Uh, but that was one of the sources of the mistakes. We've been hearing in the media a lot and, and from some analysts that they are surprised that U.S. oil production increased and that contributed to lower prices. That's nonsense. If you go back to several forecasts at the end of 2022, including that of OPEC and ours and others, the forecast of 1.1, 1.2 million barrels a day increase was built in and was expected. And we've been saying this so many times in spaces, podcasts, TV interviews, et cetera, that the US, US oil production and US shale in particular will continue to increase despite the decrease in rig count. Those who tied the rig count to production proved that they don't know anything about shale. That's really a big mistake that happened in 2023. The other issue that we've seen is a mistake from OPEC. Based on OPEC numbers, OPEC plus should increase production, but they've been cutting production since 2022, October 2022. And yet OPEC insists that the demand is very strong. Well, one of the problems we have is that demand is one thing, consumption is another, because a country can increase its demand and take that oil and store it and put it in inventories instead of consuming it. But even with that, one of the reasons why our forecast for the fourth quarter failed, first, the decline in, or the, the economic growth in China was way lower than expected. But what we did not count for and we did not know about is that the government limited the export quota and refused to increase them. And that was something we did not count for because if they did not limit the quota, then Chinese demand will be higher and they can export more products to Europe and, uh, and other places. That's a, that's a fantastic summary with uh, so many insights. Can we just touch upon one thing you mentioned, uh, the Russian economy and the trajectory you say that sanctions don't really work, but still we have to suspect that, you know, politicians trying to do their best to sort of try to end the war. But if you can just highlight that situation once again, what do you think, you know, the Russian story has told us that everything is as it used to be or some new lessons there? We published several reports recently on our Substack, whether uh, on oil or gas or LNG. And we learned several lessons. The first lesson, of course, we already knew that sanctions never work. And if you study every event of sanctions in the last 120 years, they never work. And the idea here is very simple. Countries impose sanctions to force 
the targeted country to change its attitude and do whatever the imposer want. This never happened. Even if we talk about the oil embargo of 1973, uh, the, uh, the Arab countries that imposed the embargo never achieved their objective of forcing Israel to go back to 1967 and stopping the West from supplying arms to Israel. Now, 50 years later, look at what's happening in Gaza right now and how the West basically sending money and arms to Israel. So they never achieved their objective. So sanctions never work. And you can always circumvent sanctions in various ways. And that's what the Russians did. As I mentioned, they learned from the Iranians. But when you look at what the Russians have been doing, they really found out that they need to diversify their exports. Otherwise, they don't want to be uh, kind of stuck with China and India. They don't want to be stuck economically. If they have a recession, then they get stuck. And if they have any political fallout, they got stuck too. So they need to diversify. And that's why we see them kind of focusing on refining right now and trying to send those refining products to anyone who wants to buy them in Latin America or Africa or anywhere else. On the gas fronts, it's becoming extremely interesting. And here is a story for your listeners. As those who follow the oil market know that Russia joined OPEC plus or joined the Saudis under the coalition of OPEC plus in 2016. And every time they met to cut production, the Russians objected every time. And even then, when they agreed, they never followed their quota. Until today, the Russians did cut, but they did not follow their quota. The Russians have never cut voluntarily, by the way. They cut under the guise of bad weather or technical issues or maintenance, and they claimed, oh, look, we cut. Okay? So the Russians always objected to rising oil prices. The Russians always wanted oil prices around $60 to $65. They don't want the $90, they don't want the $100, they don't want the $130. But the Saudis wanted prices between 90 and 100. So that's where the clash is. So how come the Russians do not want higher oil prices? What was the problem? Well, government revenues in Russia comes from oil and natural gas. And those long-term contracts, that's before the invasion of Ukraine, those long-term contracts basically are linked to oil. If oil prices go up substantially, then gas prices go up substantially and they start losing market share in Europe. That's again before the Ukraine crisis. At the same time, they ended up with an economic problem because if oil prices are high, gas prices are high, the ruble value goes up. And it just happened that for most Russian companies, including the oil and gas companies, most of their cost is in rubles. So if the ruble goes up, their cost goes up, and their margin of profit shrinks. So they are better off with uh, uh, kind of moderate oil prices. It gives them moderate gas prices. They maintain their market share over long term. At the same time, they don't get stuck with the higher cost. But this is only part of the story. The main story is this. When Putin decided to annex Crimea, 
the EU and the United States impose sanctions on Russia through private or through intelligence sources and through public comments, Putin realized that the shared revolution in the United States is going to enable the United States government to take their market share, their gas market share in Europe. And they got information that the U.S. government is pushing for LNG big time, although these are private companies. So what did Putin do? The first thing he did, basically, he talked to the Chinese. They started building those pipelines to China. He, he knew that this was coming. So everything that happened in 2022 was known to them in 2014. So he started building those gas lines to, to China. Then he improved the relationship with Germany big time. And they built quickly. They built Nord Stream 2 trying to ensure everything in, space, in, in place. So the US, so he was racing against the US plan for LNG. What he did not realize basically is the U US power in their ability to stop Nord Stream 2 completely, although it's finished, okay? And then build those LNG plants quickly and divert all that cheap gas to LNG and send it to Europe. It was the share revolution, the US share revolution that saved Europe from Putin. It was the US share revolution, whether oil or gas, that kept the EU together. It is, and this is one of the ironies for Norway. The only reason why Norway is the number one supplier to Europe today is the share revolution, which is, in a sense, it's competitor, but what, that's what saved Europe and saved the demand for Norway. So what happened is there was a competition since 2014 between Putin and the deep state in the United States about the U.S. gas market. The Putin administration realized that most of the gas in the United States is associated gas coming from shale oil wells. So if oil prices go up, those wells can produce more gas that will be dumped on the market at any price. And when we say at any price, every year, several times a year, that gas is sold at negative prices. And the contracts for LNG are based on Henry Hub. They are not long-term contracts, which means that US gas is going to remain cheap for a very long time, as long as oil prices are very high. So he wanted oil prices to stay low so U.S. oil production will not increase, so gas production will not increase, and then the U.S. will not achieve its objective. It was, in a sense, the Russian plan that convinced the Germans to get rid of uh, the nuclear plants so Russian gas can come in. And now the Germans got stuck with everything they, they have, and they are back to, coal, back to coal. But what happened in Europe after Ukraine is that the Europeans done nothing to their economy and their energy security is still under threat because all they did is shift dependence from Russia to the United States at a very high price because the piped gas from Russia was cheap while the LNG is expensive. And therefore, this is a permanent increase in energy cost in Europe. Here is the problem that people are not paying attention to. 
basically two problems. The first problem is Putin decided to terminate some long-term contracts. Why? Because LNG at that time was $70. The long-term contracts were $16. And he forced Europe basically to buy the LNG, the expensive LNG. He can make more money on LNG. So right now, as we speak today, 17% of, of EU gas imports come from Russia. There is no way the EU can get rid of that because the low-hanging fruit already been taken. Now that 17% are very hard to replace. And there is no way they can replace it until at least 2027, assuming there will be no growth in Europe. That's number one. So the, what the Russians are doing right now is that they realized that the only way to avoid dependence on China and India and others, well, not India for gas, but in, in, in terms of gas, is to focus on LNG, because you can send those tankers anywhere in the world. So the policy for Russia is very clear right now. When it comes to gas, it's all LNG. That's why the US right now is targeting the Arctic LNG too with sanctions, because they don't want Putin to have this, this choice. The other issue is, now we know that it was a strategic decision that's been made by the United States in the last 10 years to shift Europe dependence from Russian gas to US gas. And billions and billions of dollars are spent on the LNG plants. Anyone who think that the US will let Europe build more wind and solar to replace gas, got to think again, because the US will never let Europe reach a point where they want to replace the US LNG. So you want to talk about the future, you want to talk about gas, gas is no longer the bridge to the future. It is the future. To conclude, for Russia, the way to go is diversification of natural gas exports. And an essential part of that is to focus on LNG. That's why the US is trying to derail all the efforts for the Russian uh, LNG, that's on one side. As for oil, Russia will, will uh, focus on refining because they can sell refined products to other countries, that they, especially in Africa and others, the poorer countries that they don't have refining, refining capacity. Very, very good. So one of my uh, favorite principles that I learned from you was that you should never expect common sense anymore. And we have uh, elections coming up in U.S. and Taiwan with different outcomes, uh, while you know U.S. will play the leading role regardless, I guess. But do you expect common sense will prevail in 2024, or do you see also their election vice? It's, uh, it can happen a lot. In our newsletters and daily reports, we emphasize the point since almost March 2023, we've been saying that watch COP28 in Dubai. COP28 is going to change the climate narrative and it's going to change it to a more common sense approach where we have some sort of balance between energy security and environmental security. And this is the first time the oil industry was involved. And they, the, the primary winner of COP28 is the oil industry. They were able to shift that language. And the, uh, but the problem we have here, and this is 
I don't mean to offend anyone by saying this, but this is true. That those people who act religiously, again, the word act is important, act religiously, but they sin, because they felt they sin, they act even more religiously than, than usual. And they try to cover their sins by acting more religious. This is exactly the case with climate change uh, uh, extremists and prophets. They sin, they go back to coal, they go back to fossil fuel, they keep wearing the clothes that use fossil fuel, they keep uh, riding their uh, private jets, etc. And what they do is their rhetoric increases substantially. So what we are seeing here is the rhetoric is going up on climate change, while the actual events on the ground <clears throat> uh, are becoming more realistic. And, and that's what we see today. One of the issues that kind of really bothersome is that the Biden administration is lying about a lot of things. And just to give you an example on what they did last week, the Environmental Protection Agency that the EPA issued the yearly report about transportation. And they claimed that during the Biden years, fuel economy of cars reached record improvement. So fuel economy is the best ever. And the emissions from cars are the lowest ever based on that fuel economy number. This is a lie. And the reason why, because for 50 years, when we talk about fuel economy, we are talking about the amount of gasoline or diesel used per mile. All of a sudden, they inserted electric vehicles in the numbers. And of course, when you divide on an average, all the numbers will go down. But if you take electric vehicles out, you see that the, the fuel efficiency being flat for the last seven years and emissions being flat. So there was no improvement. This was a lie by inserting the electric vehicles. There is no way, no one in his right mind will accept the idea of inserting the electric vehicles to do those calculations. And how do you calculate uh, uh, electricity and compare it to gasoline? Because one of the issues we have, and this is kind of funny, and I don't, I don't want to get technical here, but the idea is they used the amount of electricity used in the, in the battery of the car. But if you go back to the source and, and look at the electricity wasted until it gets to the car, the whole calculation changes. Where is the irony? The irony here is when you apply that to oil, it's exactly the opposite. If you put 1,000 barrels of crude in a refinery, you get more than 1,000 barrels out of the refinery. You get an increase of the volume because everything gets lighter. While in electricity, it's exactly the opposite. So the whole calculations are fake. And this is just an example of this. Then you look at how the media and politicians are reporting renewable energy. They always talk about capacity. 
They don't talk about the actual generation. You look at the media, how they are reporting electric vehicles, and you end up with another exaggeration for two reasons. The first reason is uh, car companies publish their quarterly reports. Those are very detailed reports. They give you the number of cars by brand and name and everything. But the media basically report everything just as reported by those companies. Only when it comes to the electric vehicle section, they report growth in percentages, but they don't mention the numbers. They tell you, well, for this type of electric vehicle, uh, the demand for it increased by, or sales increased by 145%. And they stop there. They don't tell you they sold throughout three months only 900 cars because the numbers are so small, they don't want to report them. They report the increase, 145. In a sense, if you keep reading these things, you will wonder, am I the only one who is not driving electric vehicle? So that's, that's one, one issue when we talk about this. What we need from the companies that publish reports is to publish the number of cars on the road not the sales, because sales are misleading on several fronts. We have forests right now of electric vehicles that's been idle, and they are in hundreds of thousands, in, whether in China or in Europe. And those are counted as sales, and they are still being counted as a reason for decline in all demand, but they've been there idle for three years. The other final issue on electric vehicles is that insurance is going through the roof. The most expensive insurance right now is on electric vehicles. Some of the insurance premiums per year is about $8,000 because when they are involved in accidents, the cost of repair is extremely high. That's why we are seeing now a shift to hybrid. And I strongly believe that the future is for hybrid, not for electric. And therefore, the demand, the current expectations or the current forecast for all demand are way lower than reality. And that's why I am bullish on oil in the long term. It makes so much sense. I just wanted to add one thing on the transportation because I saw you also mentioned it that, have you seen the perfect balance sheet in terms of, now we're discussing deep sea mining to get all the minerals needed for uh, batteries. Then you have the weight problem. So the car is so much heavier that that has a second and third order consequence. Have you seen people like fully getting the full picture in the balance sheet or is that just never gonna happen because of the narrative? In 2017, I mentioned that at a conference. And I am supposed to reappear again as a speaker in that conference. After I mentioned the issue of the weight, they canceled me. They don't want to talk about it. And the reason why, for people to understand the difference between two cars, one electric and a similar one that's gasoline, could add up to one ton. Okay. So imagine this. Uh, roads are, if, if all cars basically are going to be heavier by one ton or more, uh, we are going to have more wear and tear on roads. And roads are made of asphalt or, or cement. Both of them depend heavily on fossil fuel. Their emissions are not counted in those cars. Then you have, and anyone right now can go to the web and search it. You have electric vehicles have more wear and tear on tires than a regular car. And tires made of what? Made of fossil fuel. 
So their emissions are not counted either. But the issue is not here. The issue is, imagine those uh, uh, the uh, multi-story garages in downtowns and various cities where you have, let's say, 15-story building that's all garages. And it can, let's say, it can handle uh, 7,000 cars. And all of a sudden, you have an additional weight of 7,000 tons. And what's going to happen to those buildings? Okay. So these are really big issues that we need to deal with. In addition to other issues, right now we have almost 17 states, uh, if, I am, uh, if my memory serves me right, 17 states in the United States that impose additional taxes on electric vehicles to compensate for the, for the loss of gasoline tax. The gasoline tax in many states are used to maintain roads and bridges. Uh, so they are imposing those taxes. Some states and some other countries are thinking seriously about shifting to mileage tax. A mileage tax, basically, regardless of your car, whether it's electric or not, you have to pay on per mile case, although we might end up with several lawsuits, especially in the United States, regarding privacy, because the only way they can measure that is to monitor you, and that uh, leads to uh, major uh, privacy issues. Uh, but the, uh, the, so we have uh, the replacement of gasoline taxes is a big issue. And then we have those batteries that are going to wear out over time. And as we mentioned, those are very big, massive batteries with toxic materials. Some people brag about, oh, recycling. Well, uh, if recycling is good, why they are getting government subsidies on one hand? And the other issue is the, the technology of batteries have not stabilized yet. It's not standard yet. So why I have to invest $50 million on a recycling project to extract certain materials only to find out that Tesla and others changed their technology and my technology now, my recycling technology is useless. So that's why we are seeing less uh, or, or we are not seeing massive investment in recycling simply because that technology is not stable yet. Here is the big issue when it comes to oil demand. If you look at long-term forecasts, you'll find out that most of the decline in oil demand in the future is not coming because of the impact of electric vehicles. It's coming out of the fuel efficiency or fuel economy in gasoline and diesel vehicles. So you are talking about eight to 12 million barrels by 2045 that we will lose because of that. Where is the problem? Of course, those numbers are exaggerated and I don't want to delve into the details of it. But here is the problem. The cars that's supposed to be produced by GM and Ford and others to be more efficient are no longer there because those, those companies are shifting to all electric. So if they are shifting all to, to, uh, to all electric, then where this decline in demand is going to happen if that efficiency is not there? We already counted for the impact of electric vehicles. But yet they are counting for additional impact. And that's why the oil demand in the future is going to be way higher than all estimates because they forget this point. Companies are not going to produce unless we have a major shift again and companies will say, you know what, sorry, I need to go back uh, and produce gasoline and diesel cars.
just one topic is higher interest rates just bullish for oil and gas because it makes all the renewables investments in solar and wind impossible to build for profits because it's hard to even make break even with zero interest rates or is it much more complicated story as well with interest rates involved interest rate hit everyone but the oil industry because they make very large profits they can afford it renewables basically have very low margin and that margin is coming from subsidies so they got hurt really hard. However, I would like to mention uh, a piece of information for those who are not uh, knowledgeable of the oil and gas market. There is no substitution between renewables and oil. In Europe, North America, Japan, South Korea, India, and China, that's more than 80% of the global demand. There is no substitution, which means that if those countries double or triple and I'm going to talk about generation, and I'm going to talk about capacity. If they double or triple their generation from solar and wind, that will have no impact on oil demand. Why? Because oil is rarely used in power generation. The impact will come from electric vehicles, not from renewables. And when it comes to renewables, they are, of course, they are going to affect coal and gas but we got to be very careful here because the impact on coal and gas is going to be in countries where the population is declining and economic growth is very low. But if you look at the majority of the world and you talk about India and China and others, the growth in energy demand is very high and higher than the growth in renewables. That means you need to fill the gap aside from the interruptions or the intermittent or the intermittent uh, uh, electricity coming from uh, uh, solar and wind. Aside from that, you need to fill the gap. And it just happened that given that LNG is expensive, that gap is going to be filled by coal. And therefore, the idea that the IA and others are talking about that coal demand will peak in 2024 is questionable because those countries demand for energy is increasing and coal remains the cheapest source and then you can add another layer that we probably need to redesign the grid at some point to fit all that renewable if we're going to increase and that's also a very complicated task it seems this is uh, absolutely a big problem probably this need a whole a whole uh, session on its own because uh, this is where the criticism to states like Arizona and, and uh, California is happening right now that, okay, you go for all your plans, but your grid is not ready. And for some European countries, especially in Eastern Europe, or the interconnection between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, you are talking about grids that are 70 years old. So there is, there is a big problem. I just have some more topics and I hope we can go on for uh, for a bit longer, but I just mentioned some countries and you can decide where you want to dive in, but it just seems interesting to study maybe Brazil, Guyana, Argentina. If you just say Latin America, it seems it's going to be quite an interesting year for that whole sector for different reasons, of course, but any thoughts on those countries in particular? Yes. It's unfortunate that for Latin America, they always jump from extreme to extreme. Uh, so we've seen it in several countries where they go from the far left to the far right, and they'll go back to the far left. And this is not good for investment. This is not good for people. This is not good for economic stability or political stability. 
So let's start. Uh, let's start with Venezuela and Guyana. Uh, this is kind of very strange situation. Uh, and I don't think it's going to lead to military escalation. Uh, I am not talking here about conspiracy theory. I'm talking about a historical fact. A historical fact is that every time a country that become, became an oil producing country and they, have, they are uh, uh, flush with money, the United States will come to them and say, it's time to buy arms from me. If you refuse, I will have you buy arms from me. So what was strange about this is that there were sanctions on Maduro. All of a sudden, the Biden administration wants to remove or at least ignore those sanctions, and they start giving exceptions uh, to some companies to increase the production of Venezuela and ease the economic situation in Venezuela. Why? What did Venezuela do? Uh, the Biden administration was successful in lowering oil prices. Oil prices are low, and probably they will stay at the current levels for a long time. They don't need the extra Venezuelan oil because it will take long time to have a major increase that affect the market. So what they need from Venezuela, that's number one. The other one is why all those meetings from the State Department and the White House with the Maduro regime and people saying, well, they want to organize the Venezuelan elections in 2024. The U.S. is organizing the, the Venezuelan elections in 2024. Are you kidding me? So why those meetings? And all of a sudden, Maduro comes out and start talking about Guyana. And all of a sudden, Guyana is conducting military exercises with the United States and planning to buy U.S. arms. What the funny thing is, what Maduro did is a copy of what Saddam Hussein did with Kuwait. The same rhetoric, the same talk. So if you want to go back to, to history, where you are you going to stop? Are you going to go back to 1500 or 1700 or 1870 or where you are you going to stop? So Guyana's production is going to be more expensive now because of what happened. But the ability of Guyana to increase production to a million barrel by 2030 is very high. So we will see that. There is no way the US government is going to let Maduro take over ExxonMobil and Chevron. There is no way. And one of the ironies is Chevron, which is the target of Maduro because he already gave them uh, kind of a, a time limit where they have to turn the assets to. Chevron is developing Maduro's fields. In Venezuela. So that, that's, that's one. For Venezuela to increase production, they can increase production by additional 200 to 300,000 barrels a day in the short term under certain conditions, but that's it. Any major increase by the time of US election uh, next year, they can add another 300 to 400, but that's it. To have one to two million barrels, you need several years. For uh, Brazil, Brazil is one of the hottest areas i mean you have the two hottest areas in the world right now are norway and brazil okay we expect that production to increase unless lula goes crazy on kind of extreme left ideas and try to destroy what they have built but this is very hard i think lula already learned the lesson and if you look at uh, the way he played it with uh, opec and opec plus when he said 
he wants to join OPEC plus and then he retracted that, et cetera. And now we find out basically it's nothing burger. Uh, so Brazil is safe on that side. As for Ar Argentina, Argentina is the craziest place right now. And uh, the, the current president, uh, uh, Javier Milley, he needs to be very careful in terms of going to the extreme because we've seen this before and he already gone to the extreme. And if he really wants real change, he should do it slowly. And instead of doing it quickly this way, of course, his supporters are saying, well, this will be painful. We have to go through the pain. Well, tell that to the hundred, to the uh, massive majority of poor Argentinians who are going to experience um, poverty, who are going to experience inflation, who are going to see a massive income gap between the rich and the poor because of it. We've seen it in other countries, by the way. So this is nothing new. We've seen it. So he should have gone slowly, and he is not. And uh, the idea that Argentina will be able to increase oil production substantially, I don't think so. There are so many problems in that sector. At the same time, domestic consumption is going to be affected in so many ways uh, by liberating their prices. And I think we might see demonstrations, massive demonstrations in the streets uh, very soon. I agree. We, we have a huge debate in Norway about nuclear. I just saw that Japan is maybe trying to, to get nuclear up and running again. Do you have an estimate for nuclear 20 years ahead? Because it's it's a quite a complicated topic, but yes. people I trust say it's just too expensive. So if you don't need it, don't build it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Everyone is switching to nuclear right now. Several other countries that do not have a nuclear are going for nuclear. So this is going to happen despite the cost, despite everything else. And the reason why, because again, back to COP28 and the change in the narrative, we have a realization right now that solar and wind are not going to do it. And we have, we already have seen the cost of offshore wind going through the roof, aside from the fact that several environmental groups are fighting them. So, Going back to nuclear is really the way to go, despite the, the, the initial cost. That's one. Of course, the technology improved substantially over the last 30 years. So what we are going to have is a completely different story. Uh, and at the same time, we have to realize that once you have nuclear, and this is, this is what the main lesson out of the war in Ukraine, it is a domestic source. Yes, you, for some countries, they need to import uranium or enrich uranium. But here is an irony for your listeners. Despite the war in Ukraine, despite the sanctions on Russia, the EU and the Biden administration imports enriched uranium from Putin until today. And the question is, why Putin did not cut them off and how he is getting paid? So the idea here is, those who are afraid of nuclear, et cetera, et cetera, uh, this is a done deal right now. We are going nuclear. Many other countries, especially in the Middle East, are going to go nuclear. Of course, we are talking about uh, uh, nuclear for power generation here. So we are going to see that the, uh, this trend because that's the only way we can fill the gap while we are achieving 
some of the climate goals. And let's remember one more time that Germany got rid of the nuclear not because nuclear is bad. They got rid of nuclear because of their agreement with Putin for Nord Stream 2. So it wasn't because nuclear is bad at all. It's a fascinating uh, time we're entering. Maybe just a, a final question, and then I'll let you off the hook. Uh, for people, investors listening who wants to find alpha, any topics, where do you sort of point directions? Where do you think people who do their research can find alpha in 2024? Is it getting harder year by year to find alpha in investing? Or are there always opportunities if you're willing to, to do the research? We, we are ending up with a serious problem right now. We've seen it in the last three years that uh, funds that focus on oil, they were hyping oil big time. And that's really, I mean, th th this is a big, a big problem. And if we don't stop them, people are going to be burned. And a lot of people got burned because of them. Okay. So the idea here is do not follow those funds because they are promoting their own funds. Okay. The other thing is when we look at these things and try to some people think if I get two different opinions, then I am fine. This is not the right approach because both of them could be wrong in this case. What you want to do basically is you really want to see over and use your experience to see who is more practical than others. To give you an, an example, I have people who criticize me because I changed my views as the market changed. So they have the impression that if you are bullish, then you have to stay bullish all along. Those guys should not be in the market. They should not think about investing. So I've seen, uh, I mean, and they are not a small population. They are a large population, okay? They should realize that things could change on daily basis, on hourly basis, and they should be really flexible. And this is probably the best advice I can give them right now is they should be prepared to be super flexible as the numbers changed. So we did change our views in 2023, and we are proud of the fact that we did the change early and before others as we've seen the numbers change. And if they want to benefit from it, probably they should be as flexible. Well, let's end there, Anas. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a big privilege to have you on, and I wish you a very good year ahead. Thank you. If you like this episode and the content we produce, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Vonheim. See you next time. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Vonheim. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.